Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one. And please turn there. This is the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning. Jonah chapter one, verses one through three. And once again, I'm glad that you're here. And I am excited to look at God's word with you. So again, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah and direct your eyes to verses one through three of chapter one. And let's begin as we always do by reading the text. So follow along as I read Jonah one, one through three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, what we're seeing here is God's initial calling of Jonah and Jonah's response to God. So I've entitled this message, Rejecting God's call because that's exactly what Jonah is going to do. God, in his sovereignty, chooses a servant. He chooses a servant to set his life to do God's will. And this should be servant says no. And these verses really serve as a summary and segue into the rest of the book, as we'll see. It's God's merciful calling a man's heart, which is out of alignment with God's, refusing to mercifully call other people to align their hearts with God. He's out of alignment called to go to a people who are out of alignment. And now the call of God in scripture throughout the scripture really comes with a few things. It comes with undeserved privilege. It comes with divine blessing. It comes with sobering weight. 
the word of God, the call of God. And it's been that way from the very beginning. If you think about it, God called Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one, one and two, to obey him, fill the earth and what? Subdue it. God called Noah in Genesis chapter six to build an ark, preserving some while destroying all flesh on the face of the planet. God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to go to a land. And in Genesis chapter 17, to trust him for a son. And in Genesis chapter 22, to sacrifice that son. He called Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the priests and Joshua and Samuel and David. He called Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets, men like Gideon, all the way to men like Nehemiah, who were polar opposites in personality. He called his people Israel. And then in the New Testament, he called Zechariah. He called him and he revealed to him his will to know and to do his will. He called Mary and Joseph. He called John the Baptist, the disciples, Paul, for a very particular purpose. And so beyond the most foundational call, which is the call to salvation through faith, God also calls men and women to know and to do his will in their lives. And his call on a life, his call on your life, it comes with divine sovereignty. God has supreme rights. It comes by divine grace. It's God's gracious invitation to be, for you to be involved in his plan and for you to have God's involvement in your life. It comes with divine authority. God is to be obeyed as the creator and the owner of all things. And it comes with divine wisdom. God's will is always right and it's always best. And so God makes his will clear. But the vital question is, how will his people respond? How will you respond? Will his people align their hearts and lives with his will? Will they share his heart? Will they trust his wisdom? Will they obey his voice? And those questions really come to us. They come to you. It's really only logical to expect his people to share his heart and do his will. I mean, that's only logical. That's what Romans 12 even points us to. Here's the logical response as we think about the salvation that God has given us. Let your life be a living sacrifice. And so if you were in Christ, if you re responded to God's call of salvation, 
then he has revealed his will to you in his word. He's revealed his will for your life in his word. And he's given you his spirit who convicts you and empowers you to obey his will. The word of God is clear and his spirit, he doesn't leave you alone. His spirit convicts you of the truth and empowers you to live it out. And yet there are areas of our lives in which we refuse to submit. And we even do so subtly. We think that if we just kind of get up, we just kind of keep moving, we keep our lives busy, we keep our minds off of it. If we stay away from God in those areas of our lives, then he'll just let us be. And yet God is not any further away from us in witnessing our defiance. And if we think that, then we've deceived ourselves. We've deceived ourselves. And this was Jonah's delusion. His story is not a call to salvation. He was already a follower of Yahweh. Jonah, this story is not really a call to ministry. He was already a prophet. Although we can glean principles from this story for both salvation and ministry. This was a call for Jonah to align himself with God's heart and God's will. It was a man of God who was a believer in God who refused to align his heart and his will with God's. That's the story. And God is mercifully pursuing you, just like he will do for Jonah. God wants you to see the mercy he has shown you in Christ so that you will respond to his word, that you will share his heart, and that you will do his, his will. And so we learn this from his story. And what we're going to see in just these three verses is number one, God's initial call to Jonah in verses one through two. God's initial call to Jonah. And then number two, we're going to see Jonah's irrational response to God in verse three. God's initial call to Jonah and Jonah's irrational response to God. And so let's start with God's initial call to Jonah. Look at verses one through two. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So as we begin the section and we begin to embark really through this book at this point, we're launched into this section and into the book with the word now. Now. 
and it's often translated as then. But it's a unique word to start an entire book with. Because this word gives the impression that something is continuing. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so it's often translated as then. The entire phrase, now the word of the Lord came to, it's often used to initiate a narrative within a narrative. It's often used to initiate this narrative that's happening inside a narrative. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So we're not given a typical introduction here into a book. A typical introduction that would set this book apart as a book. Like, for instance, what we have in the book of Isaiah, which begins with the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. It's an introduction to this book. Or like we have in the book of Jeremiah, which reads, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. Instead, as we start this book, it's as if we're continuing on in something. We're progressing along in what God is already doing. And it's what God is doing among his people. God is accomplishing this great redemptive work in the world and in his people and through his people and his greater redemptive narrative and his sovereign work. And God now is doing this work in Jonah and through Jonah as part of his greater plan. And by the way, that's God's will and plan and call in your life. It's not about your narrative. It's not about your plan. God is accomplishing something far greater, namely redeeming the world, redeeming a people to himself and showing them their sin and who they are and who he is and what he's done. And so Jonah's plan, Jonah's life, Jonah's call happens within God's greater plan, his greater redemptive story. But what is happening at this point? Well, at this point in Israel's history, God's people had suffered great torment. They've experienced great loss at this point in history. Israel was led into sin by its leaders. They had experienced God's hand of discipline. Israel's borders had shrunk. And the Assyrians... The Assyrians had established control of the Near East. In 2 Kings 14, 27, it says, the affliction of Israel was very bitter. There was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. That's the state. Yet, the Lord had compassion on Israel. Despite the sinful leadership of Jeroboam II, God extends Israel's territories to the greatest extent since David and Solomon's rule. God's grace, despite their disobedience, 
And so Jonah was a prophet during this time, during Jeroboam's rule. And Jonah even predicted Jeroboam's, or Jonah predicted Jeroboam's to territorial, territorial success in 2 Kings 14, 26. He predicted that Jeroboam would have success in re-extending Israel's borders. Yet during this time, the spiritual condition of Israel it was dark. It was dark times spiritually in Israel's history. Hosea and Amos were also prophets during this time. And they were sent by God to warn Israel of God's impending judgment on them if they did not repent from their ways. So, Assyria had temporarily declined in power, but in Hosea 11.5, here's what Hosea said. He said that Assyria would again rise in power and they would be God's instrument for future judgment on Israel if Israel would refuse to repent. And so listen, it's this time, it's at this time in Israel's history when they had been devastated by the Assyrians, when God was having compassion on them by re-extending their borders, even though they didn't deserve it, through a sinful leader, Jeroboam II. It was when Israel was being led into all kinds of sin. It was when Amos and Hosea were threatening the future judgment of Israel by the Assyrians that God comes to Jonah. And this is the next part of God's ongoing redemptive work. This is his plan for Israel. This is his plan for Jonah. This is his plan for Assyria. And so God comes and reveals his will to Jonah within his greater redemptive plan. And in verse one, we read this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The phrase will be used seven times in the book where God is going to mercifully call Jonah to know and to do his will. God repeatedly pursues a man whose heart is out of alignment. And this marks the first and initial call. So here... God, through any number of possible ways, speaks his will to his prophet. God calls him. This is not a word from man. This is not a word simply from a friend. This is the word of the Lord. This word comes from God. It comes from Yahweh. It comes from the sovereign. It comes from the only wise and the only true God. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word coming from the God who created Jonah and all things. This is not a suggestion. It's the word of God. And so it's intentional. It's authoritative. Think about this. God, the one who holds all authority, not to be challenged by anybody, is the source 
And therefore, what proceeds from this all authoritative one in his words is authoritative. It's what God says, it's what God means, and it's definitively and decidedly his will. This is the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. What comes with his word? Privilege of God's people participating in his plan, the promise of blessing, the weight of sovereignty, the infallibility of God's wisdom. All of these things come with God's word. We can trust it. We can participate in his plan. We can be promised his blessing in our lives. And we understand the weight of it because it comes from the sovereign one. But God's word, listen, reveals God's heart. And God's word reveals God's mind. You can know what God thinks about anything that you're going through as you read his word. The Bible is God's revelation of his thoughts, how he thinks about things. And so God's word coming to Jonah is God revealing his will, his mind, his heart to this man. And here's the foundational question that really confronts us at this point is asking, does the word of God hold the proper weight in your life? Does the word of God hold the proper weight in your life? That's the question. Because everything will proceed from that point. Joshua says that we must be careful to do all that is written in it. Think about that. Joshua says, be careful to do all that is written in it. That means we don't just fly by the seat of our pants and some areas of our lives will conform and some areas we won't. We are to be careful to do all that is written in it. It's God's mercy to reveal his will to us. It's God's mercy to reveal his good plan to us for his glory and our good. And so when the word of God holds supreme weight in our lives, when it holds supreme weight in our lives, we submit underneath of it. We bow down under it. So God's word comes to Jonah. As we see in verse one, and Jonah is the son of Amittai. The word of the Lord comes and it comes to this man, Jonah, the son of Amittai. We don't know anything about Amittai, his father. And we know really nothing more about Jonah himself, except from what I read and mentioned in 2 Kings 14, 25, which I mentioned earlier, that he was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam, that he prophesied Jeroboam's success to re-extend Israel's borders, which happened. So Jonah's a true prophet because what he said came to pass. But that's all we know. We know Jesus refers to him in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40, as a historical illustration and sign of Jesus's own literal bodily resurrection. But that's all we know. We know that Jonah's name means dove, but we really can't be sure that it holds any significance. <laughs> 
So we simply know that he's a believer in Yahweh, that he's a prophet called by God in a time of great spiritual need, and it was God's mercy to initiate his call on Jonah's life. It was God's mercy to initiate his movement in Jonah's life. And to even include him and then to repeatedly pursue him and then to shape this man. God did not have to initiate any of that in Jonah's life. He didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to initiate it and he didn't have to repeatedly pursue him. And he didn't have to use him. And so what a mercy to reveal his heart, his mind, his plan, his instructions for Jonah's life. And so what specifically does God say to Jonah? Well, verse two reveals it. It says this, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. God says to Jonah, arise, go. These are two imperatives back to back. Arise, go. And really combined, they not only give Jonah a firm order that this is a command, that these are commands, but they give it to him back to back with a sense of immediacy. Arise, go. The combination of both gives not only the firm orders, but the sense of immediacy. And so this is authoritative firmness. This isn't suggestion. This is definitiveness. This is an order. And really, this makes Jonah's response all the more egregious and audacious. God gives clear commands, clear orders, clear instructions and clear expectation of immediate obedience with the right heart. So what were the instructions? Well, verse two, Jonah is to go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That's what he's to do. He's to go to Nineveh, that great city. Nineveh, was at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. It was built by Nimrod, which makes sense. It was, according to Genesis 10, 11. But it had become an extremely pivotal city and eventually became a serious capital. And so God calls it a great city, referring to its size. It was second only in size to Babylon. The book uses this term often when speaking of the magnitude of something. Remember, if you've read this book, a great wind, a great storm, a great fish, all in this book. This city was located on the east side of the Tigris River, situated in modern-day Iraq, it's 550 miles north of Samaria 
And so at a normal pace from where Jonah was, it would take him about 15 to 20, uh, uh, of him making about 15 to 20 miles per day of a journey, which was normal. It would take Jonah more than a month to get there. And so what did God command Jonah to do? Verse two, to call out against it. To call out against this city. Jonah was sent to preach. He was sent to preach. The content of his preaching was God's judgment. It probably involved an appeal, though we don't see it. But it was an announcement of judgment. He was to preach God's righteousness, their sinfulness, and God's imminent judgment. It would be for reasons that if the Ninevites were honest about, they would all be aware of and they would all agree with Jonah about God's assessment of them. But the question is, how would they respond to God's call? How would they respond? So when Jonah goes later, Jonah's only recording words are impending threat. Impending threat to weigh on the consciences of those who heard it, to weigh on their consciences. Jonah was called to proclaim a message that opposes sinners' ways. He was called to speak of God's coming judgment in light of their sin. And yet, this message of judgment would be an act of mercy. For anyone who hears, becomes aware of their sin, and then turns from their sin to God. That's why the Bible put forth that for God to say nothing is actually a worse judgment. It would mean that God had already given them over to their ways. And this is still the case today. If you hear God's message of sin and God's coming judgment and repentance and faith in Christ, then what an act of mercy. Don't push that away. Don't get angry at that. That's an act of mercy. Respond while you still hear his voice. That means that now is still an acceptable time for you. That God hasn't given you over to your ways. That judgment isn't sure. If his message still reaches your ears, which it is doing right now, then you still have a chance. God is warning you of judgment. His message to your ears is an act of grace to offer you salvation in Christ. And so this message is of judgment, but it's of mercy. And you start to see the themes, God's sovereignty and God's mercy in all of these different areas. 
with Jonah, with the Assyrians, with his redemptive plan. So God states more specifically his heart, verse two, for their evil has come up before me. Meaning their sin is at capacity. It's about to cross the line. It's about to cross the line of them having no more opportunity. Judgment is going to be sure and it's coming soon. The aroma of their evil has become unbearable. The sight of their sin has become detestable. And the sound of their sin has become deafening to my ears. God sees it, in other words. God's aware of it. God knows it. And God hates it. God hates their sin. And described here, they are evil and wicked. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their what? Evil has come up before me. They're evil and they are wicked, as described here. And the Assyrians sure would, uh, were. They were pridefully persistent in their sin. In Jonah 3.8, if you just turn one page over, here's what the king will even admit about his people. He says, but let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone, here's what he says about his people, turn from his evil way, from the violence of his hand. They were evil and violent. Zephaniah 2.15 describes them as exultant. They were thinking that they were secure. Zephaniah 2.15 says that they say this, I am and there is no one else. Nahum chapters 2 through 3 say that they made people their prey that they were full of lies and plunder, that they were full of whores and seductive prostitutes who betray entire nations, that they were full of greedy merchants. And these people were brutal and cruel. And that's clear even from archaeology. From archaeology alone, we could tell that they scalped their victims, that they tore off their lips and their hands, that they filleted them alive, that they made piles of their skulls and their city was unrivaled in their idolatry. They had temples dedicated to the gods of Hebu, Asher, Adad, and Ishtar. And so this was an evil city. So here you've got a master, God. You've got a man, Jonah. You've got a message, God's word, and you've got a motivation, God's heart. And so in a number of ways, these verses highlight God's clear word, his sovereign choice, his uncompromising authority, his righteous judgment, his undeserved mercy, and he expects his servant to share his heart and to do his will. And this is relevant for you who are in Christ because God mercifully calls you by his written word 
his authoritative word, his call on your life to do his will and to share his heart in every area of your life. And yes, mission as well, to even extend his mercy that he's shown you to the world. And so the question is this, how are you responding to God's word? That's the question. In every area of your life, even that area that you hope I'm not referring to right now. The area that you keep pushing out of your mind right now. That area. I'm talking about that area. What about every area of your life? Well, let's look at how Jonah responds. We see number two, Jonah's irrational response. And we read in verse three. But Jonah arose, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the first word we get here is but. And that says it all, doesn't it? It says it all. We could be done. Verse three, Jonah rose. He arose. He arose in willful rejection of God's clear instructions. And so verse three says to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The emphasis here and the way that this is being structured and stated is highlighting Jonah's disobedience. That's what the author wants you to see here. It's highlighting Jonah's disobedience. It says he rose to flee to Tarshish. So he found a ship to Tarshish and he paid a fare then to go to Tarshish. God's destination was Nineveh. Jonah's destination was Tarshish. It's showing you that intentionally. It's highlighting Jonah's disobedience. God's instructions were to take him 500 miles northeast and Jonah in his pride attempts to hide and distance himself from God's commands. In verse three, he gets himself to Joppa, which is the nearest seaport. He's going to board a ship to take him nearly 2,000 miles west. He's to go 500 miles northeast and he's going to board a ship to take him 2,000 miles west. The clear opposite direction. In his disobedience, this journey would be harder. The journey of his disobedience would make things harder. It would cost him more. And he would end up even further away from God's will. 
from God's revealed will. In verse three, here's his reason. To flee from the presence of the Lord. To flee from before Yahweh. Now, we know from the Old Testament that God's people knew Yahweh wasn't a local deity. Later on in Jonah's own words in, verses, in chapter one, verse nine, Jonah knew that Yahweh was the God of heaven and the creator and the ruler of all things. Jonah knew that, which only highlights Jonah's sinful vacillation, his irrational response. Psalm 139 that I read earlier in the service for our call to worship even makes clear that in the Old Testament, God's people understood his omnipresence. It says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? So what does this mean? Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It means that Jonah chose to rebel against God. That's what it means. And it's highlighting that him doing so was completely irrational. It was foolish and it was blind to reality. Fleeing from the presence of the Lord, it means he chose to rebel against God, but the idea of fleeing from the presence of the omnipresent highlights his foolishness. That he is irrational. He's not thinking about reality. Jonah was willfully rebellious and defiant and the responsibility was completely upon him. It was completely his fault and it was completely illogical. And by the way, that's what it is when we refuse to submit to God's clear instructions in his word. It is completely illogical, irrational, foolish, and doesn't see reality. But oftentimes in the moment, we're blinded, aren't we? We're tunnel visioned. And so going back to the beginning of verse three, it's but, right? Well, it can also be translated as so. And so in that way, it would read, so Jonah rose. And that would highlight his willful choice. Because if it was so, then you would expect the next words to read, and went to Nineveh, right? The Lord said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. So Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. It's highlighting his willful disobedience. Jonah's acting as the sovereign. He's acting as the authority. He's following his heart. All of which are a rejection of God's clear word. And so this is blatant, yet this is terribly casual. This is foolish. This is willfully rebellious. And this is proud. So what in the world is Jonah thinking? Not that it's valid, but what in the world is this man thinking? Well, perhaps he was afraid. 
the Assyrians were treacherous. Perhaps he was lazy. The task would require some spiritual sweat. But the foundational reason is in chapter four, verse two. You can just turn to the right. It says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's reasoning for disobeying the Lord was bitterness. It was a lack of compassion. It was pride. He knew that if God's message went there and people heard it, that there would be a chance that people would repent. And if they repented, there would be a chance that God shows mercy and forgives them. Because that's just who God is. He knew the character of God, the heart of God, but Jonah's heart didn't match God's heart. His heart was out of alignment. Jonah knew their evil and he wanted to withhold God's message of judgment because God's message of judgment had the potential of turning them from their ways. And so he wanted to hand them over to their ways, not intervene at all. So judgment would be inevitable for these people. This was personal. And Jonah knew their attack on his people. So he knew that they had caused his people great hurt. They knew, he knew the dishonor that they had brought to God, but it was also proud because in light of God's discipline and judgment on Israel, Jonah thought this probably, that if Nineveh hears this message and they repent and they're forgiven, then what would it say about Israel's hard hearts? Because they hear God's message and they don't repent. So comparatively, it would make his people look bad. And Israel didn't repent, and Nineveh would. So ironically, this does happen. And the book ends even with Jonah still embittered while Nineveh is doing everything they can to repent, though it won't last long. They're going to go to great lengths. And Jonah's going to go to great lengths to run. And he's going to still be embittered. So what Jonah fails to see is God's repeated call of him, his loving discipline of him, his continued pursuit of him, and yet Jonah refusing to repeatedly and mercifully pursue others. And listen, of course, this pursuit does not mean that God has shown mercy as accepting people as they are. In Christ, we are called to go and show mercy because we have been shown what? Mercy. But that does not mean, oh, you should accept people as they are and not call them to repentance and faith in Christ. We've been shown mercy by God's grace in response to the gospel. And so when we go to show mercy, that means that we should go continue to pursue and call and preach to people to hear God's message so that they respond. And so... Mercy is a continual call to repentance and faith and forgiveness for those who meet those requirements. But this is also Jonah's distrust in God. Jonah knew Amos and Nahum's prediction. And perhaps if he calls the Ninevites for their benefit, he would aid the future destruction of his own people. And Jonah wanted no part of that. But that's distrusting God. And so all of this simply comes down to a refusal 
to trust and obey God's clear word. That's what it comes down to. The reasons, whatever they are, are wrong. Whatever subtle or blatant reasons for disobeying God's clear words are wrong. So verse three, Jonah goes down to Joppa. He found a ship and just a note, when we desire to disobey God, there will oftentimes be an opportunity to do so. When you decide to disobey God, there will often be an opportunity waiting for you to facilitate you doing so. But when the opportunity clearly violates the Lord's word, it's not an opportunity. It's only an opportunity to sin. We can't look at our circumstances to direct us. We must obey God's clear word regardless of the opportunities and circumstances you have in your life. The opportunities and circumstances in your life to not follow God faithfully are not opportunities for good, for your good and for God's glory. God's clear word stands regardless of your particular circumstances and opportunities. Just because you have the tickets to take you away from the game or to take you away from church and go to the game Sunday after Sunday after Sunday doesn't mean that that's God's will for your life. His will is clear to gather with the saints regularly. So here, verse three, Jonah pays the fare He pays out of his own resources to ensure that he gets what he wants to disobey God. He actually took a loss to take a loss. He paid to lose. This is idiocy. It it, it will always cost us something to run from the Lord's will. We will always suffer loss. And what you realize is you went through more trouble only to get into more trouble. I mean, all it did was get you into trouble. This is irrational. This is determined. This is madness. And that's what sin does. We're too often willing in the moment to do whatever it takes to get whatever we want. And so here he possibly rented a ship. It would have been expensive. He would leave his family. He would leave his people. He would leave his life. He would leave the pleasure of God. Verse three, then he even went down into it. Into what? Into the ship. So he doesn't just go to Joppa. He doesn't just go 2,000 miles of Tarshish, not just to a ship, but inside the ship. In efforts to be as closed off as possible to the Lord's voice in this area in his life. Verse three, he did it and all of this to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He's really willing to risk his life in open sea, willing to be with those who don't know God, willing by his own fleshly and irrational strength to decide his own future. And what he fails to realize is that this distance that he's created between him and God actually has created zero distance between him and God. It has accomplished nothing but trouble. It has distanced him zero. 
from the gaze of God. Yet, Jonah's heels are dug, the stage is set for him to deal with God. And thank God that by his mercy, he will deal with Jonah because he doesn't have to. So he's gonna discipline Jonah. He's gonna deliver Jonah. And he's gonna once again call Jonah. So as we close, if you are in Christ, if you are God's servant, God extends his mercy to you. God initiates his plan in your life. God reveals his will in his mind through his clear word in your life. For your growth, for your sanctification, for your participation, it comes with infallible wisdom. It comes with the weight of divine sovereignty. It comes with great mercy. And he even extends his word to go through you for the salvation of the word, of the world. And so the question is, how will you respond to God's word? How will you respond? Will you, by his enabling spirit, align your heart and your life to his? Will you submit your will to his? That's the question. And if you don't know Christ, listen, God has sent you a message by which you can be saved. And so that's his mercy on your life that you're hearing it. He sent his son to earth who obeyed him actually perfectly. And to a people, us, to earth, who didn't deserve it. I mean, to die on our behalf, to die as a substitute for the penalty that you deserve. And if you'll agree with God about your heart, acknowledge who he is, desire to do his will, if you'll repent, if you'll trust in Christ, as the only merit for the forgiveness of your sins in his life and his death and his resurrection, then God will save you. And so I pray that you would do that today. But let's be people who hear God's word, who share God's heart, and who do God's, God's will.